You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Others, who do you believe was behind it? The American government? Criminal elements of the military-industrial complex, the same ones that staged Gulf of Tonkin, mm-hmm. the same ones that staged Operation, right. the mass shootings of Operation right. Gladio. Right. Ooh, do you, the CIA do you don't like this ice, right ice. now. I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that been in a Bugatti. He's a member of a good Illuminati. They do lots of Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. We talk about art, politics, culture, and religion. We're also a proud member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Go ahead and like our Facebook page and give us a nice review on iTunes. Now enjoy the show. They're out there. They're everywhere. You can't see them, but they're coming after you. These few lines may well define who we are as a people better than anything else I can think of. From our movies, books, and binge-watching habits, what Richard Hofstadter called the paranoid style dominates our cultural imagination like little else. What's worse is that it doesn't take much intuition to see how that same mindset infiltrates our lives in other ways as well. Political discourse is an obvious cultural space. So we're here today to talk about conspiratorial thinking and conspiracy theories. This should be both fun and terrifying, and I think everything good is. So let's get started. Uh, Hello, everybody. My name is uh, Danny Anderson. I'm assistant professor of English at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. Thanks for downloading another episode of Sectarian Review. Um, I'm joined today once again by Jordan Poss, uh, who you may remember from our Trumpism episode. Jordan, how's it going today? Good. I'm excited to be talking about something other than Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, we're talking about the same sort of thing, but hopefully in a fun way, right? Uh, it's not. Yeah, good. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Jordan, you sound much better today. Uh, it's, it's become a running I'll joke on the show about the internet connection we had last time. So uh, I think we've oh, solved that problem. So uh, once again, I want to thank you personally for all your work in uh, rectifying that from the last time. Um, not a problem. Well, I want to kind of get right into the show today because I think this is going to be a hefty one. And uh, depending on how things go, it may get cut up into a series. Who knows? Um, but I want to – I have some listener feedback that I want to uh, um, acknowledge and actually uh, thank people for. Uh, we got a, I got a Facebook message on the Facebook page for the show from Carter Stepper um, who actually um, – thanked us for what we do, which was nice, but also suggested a couple of really good topics. Uh, One on sci-fi, which I know a little bit about, but not a lot. And so I would love, uh, Carter suggested he might be interested in uh, in joining in for an episode about that someday. But if anybody else has any interest in that, I would love to hear uh, your feedback uh, about that. I think it's a great idea, uh, thinking specifically about the Philip K. Dick uh, Amazon series, Man in the High Castle, it, it seems to be utterly culturally relevant. And I think this is a great time to talk about sci-fi. Um, and he also suggested something about heavy metal, which I know absolutely nothing about. <laughs> so if anybody's interested in that, uh, please do contact the show um, and uh, and talk, help us talk through that because I would love to learn more. Um, 
And on the website, we uh, re- I began a, a dedicated website to the show. It's sectarianreviewpodcast.weebly.com. I'm cheap, so I didn't get. I chose the free service here, uh, so the Weebly still in the title there. Um, but uh, a couple of uh, comments, one from Josh and one from Carter, who I assume is the same Carter from the Facebook page, um, th- had some interesting comments about Anabaptists and their beliefs with regards to things like Christian nationalism. And I encourage you to go you know, find those uh, on the blog for that website and, and uh, see if you can contribute. I would really like to follow that up with an episode. I do know a couple of people who have Anabaptist backgrounds, and I would love to get um, – more insight into that uh, into that question because again it's something that is sort of outside of what I know which is I guess the whole point of doing the show is to learn more than I already know but um, and uh, the last thing uh, we uh, do have the Facebook page please go ahead and like that and uh, and you can get more content we'll provide links for things that we talk about on the show and so forth um, but you could also get in touch with us there and, and give feedback and, and, and contribute in, in interesting ways so if uh, uh, you haven't been doing that I did put out a call for um, you know viewers favorite uh, conspiracy theories, whether they believe them or not is how I phrase it. And I got some really interesting ones, both on the Twitter feed and, uh, and Facebook. And one, um, Alex Gennetti, a former student of mine at Emmanuel, uh, he had a really interesting, uh, he reminded me of the moon landing hoax, um, particularly Stanley <laughs> Kubrick's involvement in this. Do you know about this, uh, Jordan? The- uh, this was one of the first real big ones I was ever aware of in high school. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. There's a great uh, documentary about the movie The Shining. It's called Room 237. It used to be on Netflix. I don't know if it still is or not. But there's so many theories about that movie, um, particularly what Kubrick meant, that that are basically explored in that documentary. And one of them is that this is subtly his way of admitting his role in faking the moon landing. (laughs) Uh, Danny, the little boy, wears this little USA rocket t-shirt or sweatshirt. It's it's pretty entertaining. Um, Another one I got was something, there's apparently an Alaskan weather station that controls the whole world's climate. Um, And so that's obviously nefarious. Um, Jay, Is that the same... uh Go ahead. I was going to say. I was going to say. Is that the same uh, station where they have the earthquake machine? I don't know about that part of it. <laughs> I, th- I think I've heard that too. Oh, that that would be beautiful. Um, uh, Jay, uh, you, you know from the last ep- uh, episode, he has I think what maybe my favorite one of all time. Um, Leonard Nimoy apparently faked his own death. A. <laughs> To take over the Illuminati, um, B, to assassinate um, Judge Antonin Scalia and repeal the 22nd Amendment of the Constitution. I think uh, that may be the greatest conspiracy theory of all time. Um, because if that's true, that blows the lid off of a lot of stuff. And uh, and a colleague of mine at the at Mount Aloysius, uh, Chris Burlingame, uh, was interested in chemtrails uh, controlling the weather and actually causing the drought in California. Uh, these are these are some that uh, the viewer or listeners or these people who follow me on Facebook had uh, had contributed. And uh, hopefully they set the tone for what we're going to do today. Because I do want to kind of have some fun with this. And these are fun. I even made my oh, little yeah. my own. I, you can hear it maybe. It's my little tinfoil hat that I made. Um, and I, I was going to wear it. Jordan can see me. I, I have it on now. But um, it, it's a little sweaty, uh, so I, I took it off. It was get a little hot under that thing. So, um, well, anyway, so please do keep in touch with us. That's what kind of makes this fun. Uh, we have many avenues now. There's the, like I said, the Facebook page, the website. 
uh, we have a Twitter account. You can even follow me on Twitter if you want, uh, at Danny P. Anderson. P stands for Paul, if anyone's interested in that. Um, and there's uh, we have a Gmail account, too, sectarianreview at gmail.com. So uh, please do keep in touch uh, with the show. Uh, this is kind of what my motivation is uh, for even doing this. So, um, so um, Jordan, <laughs> we both have some personal <laughs> anecdotes here uh, that I think will help us get into this topic. What are some stories about conspiracy theories and whatnot that you want to share? Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I was going to kind of come at this autobiographically, um, and pretty much everybody can do that now because this is by no means a friend, by no means a fringe movement. Uh, something we'll have more to say about later, probably. Uh, but you know, some of the first ones that I was exposed to were kind of native to my particular subculture. Um, I think you alluded to like to your own background before. Um, mine is. I think broadly similar. I kind of came up in like a fundamentalist Baptist tradition and um, you know, every subculture has its own particular kind of worries and kind of conspiratorial inclinations. And so a lot of the early stuff that I was exposed to, which even at the time didn't quite <laughs> seem right to me, not, not that I was a hyper rational little kid or anything, but just something <laughs> didn't seem right about it. Uh, you know, there was a various, this was the early nineties, so it was kind of in the the fading stages of that like Satanist cult moral panic in the eighties. Oh yes, yes. Uh, you know, you know. I heard back masking and rock music referred to in utter seriousness. Um, Disney, you know, Disney was you know trying to turn us all into sex perverts or something. Oh yeah, well, um, penises all over the place in those movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know. You, you can name a, a million of those things. Uh, the church bookstore had little pamphlets about what the Masons are actually up to. Mm. Um, toy companies, you know, trying to ruin our kids. Um, and just a kind of general penumbra of anti-Catholicism, which we'll talk more about later. Uh, tying it back to what y'all talked about with Jay, um, we watched some of those early David Barton videos uh-huh. in uh, church. And... Um, Barton's got more serious problems than conspiracy theories, but he does venture into that conspiracist territory, right? When he when he begins to answer his opponents, um, yeah. Basically, you know, I, I was thinking of this the whole time I was listening to you and Jay in the car. I was like, conspiracy theories, <laughs> um, that that mindset, because you know, for him, and we'll return to this again later, probably. Uh, for him, any opponent is ipso facto part of the conspiracy, right? right. Um, even you know, many, many of his strongest opponents are conservative evangelical christian historians right Uh, i follow several of them on twitter and barton answers that by saying you know well essentially you know you're the manchurian candidate you're you know because you have participated in higher education to the point of getting a master's or a phd or whatever you have unwilling or unwittingly surrendered your kind of agency and you've unwittingly become a tool of the conspiracy. Yeah. Um, all of those are, you know, those kind of classic hallmarks, but anyway, I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. <laughs> uh, the stuff that really started to jump out at me that I really remember engaging with was, um, first of all, the JFK thing. Yeah. Cause, um, I was a, I was a kind of precocious nerd kid. And when we got satellite, I watched the history channel at the time and they used to run these documentaries called the men who killed Kennedy. Oh, I remember those. Yeah, and, those. uh, Oh yeah, they and they were fascinating until you know you grow up. Yeah, uh, and I, I remember thinking at the time though how every episode came to a different conclusion. But I, I was like twelve. I wasn't really bothered by that. 
um, the, the JFK thing in high school, the first time I remember really getting upset's not quite the right word, but really starting to investigate the factuality of one of these things, actually starting to question it and really dig into the evidence, quote unquote, yeah. I just made air quotes <laughs> for those of you all not on Skype. Um, get, to really get into the evidence of one of these things was the moon landing. Um, I think I was a junior or senior and some sort of video hit the internet that offered some kind of like 10 pieces of incontrovertible proof that the moon landing was fake. Mm. Uh, and I remember I was intrigued by this and also a little worried because I was one of those kids who wanted to be an astronaut yeah. you know, so bad. <laughs> um, you know, I had all the Neil Armstrong books and I'd been to space camp and that kind of thing. So I had a personal stake in this and I wanted to find out if it was true or not. And lo and behold, I, I go to this website that all these kids are talking about and it's like circumstantial. You know, it's like the moon landing was in 1969. Richard Nixon was president. Nixon lied about other things. Therefore, he lied about this. And, <laughs> this is, yeah. you know, you don't have to be a medieval scholastic to find problems with that, <laughs> with that syllogism. Uh, so that was one of the first ones I actually got into kind of arguments about. And, of course, my senior year of high school was also the year of 9-11. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah, so that, that's kind of a a big confluence and it that that that's one of the ones that's still um are you familiar with the tv tropes website oh uh, yes yes yeah uh the 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 trope berserk button um 9-11 trutherism is one of my berserk buttons that's one thing that just to me is uh and we'll talk about this more later in the in the final thing we have kind of in our outline you know why does any of this matter but yeah. uh y- you know that that's that's not just a, a kind of a quirky thing it's you know, it's got serious implications. And um, I remember being kind of vaguely aware of some, you know, kind of hints of conspiracy in that, you know, even in the year following when everybody was, you know, bipartisanly waving flags and stuff. Right. Uh, but in college, in college is when I started to really hear the rumblings. And I remember in particular, I think maybe my last year of college, uh, lunch where, um, it was one of those lunches where you mix circles of friends and yeah. it reminds you why you never do that. <laughs> uh, I was eating with one friend from one program and another friend from another program. And uh, one of them uh, started going off on, I can't even remember who he blamed for it, but it was like, I don't think he used the phrase nine 11 was an inside job, but he kept, he kept saying, follow the money trail, follow the money trail. Mm. And my other lunch mates were visibly uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, so that got me, I think that was the thing that finally tipped me over into like really wanting to dedicate some time to studying this stuff and not, not just, and, and again, looking ahead, we'll talk about how to argue and whether to argue about this stuff. Uh, but not even in terms of like evidence because there's always more quote unquote evidence. Right. Um, but in the mindset that it engenders, that was, uh, so, you know, the last year or so of college and then especially through grad school, uh, in addition to all the other stuff that I was doing, I would kind of take time and sort of immerse myself in these things. Cause, um, yeah. And I think going back to even my upbringing, right. The, the JFK, the Mason stuff, yeah. Uh, Cause you know, all those lurid anti-Masonic pamphlets with the, you know, for, for a kid with my with my particular inclinations, all the symbols, yeah. all the rituals, you know, all the things that kind of attract me now to like something more high church. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, it, uh, th- those were potent, especially going to a, you know, stripped down 
Fundy Baptist kind of uh, thing. Yeah. Uh, the, the kind of mystery of it, right? Um, yeah, let me let's step so, in right uh, there. Um, the Mason thing is oh, very yeah. interesting to me personally. I uh, happen to wear this ring. I'll show you. Uh, but uh, uh, well, I, I, as I was talking, I noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my uh, this is is not a Masonic ring. It's just got a diamond shape uh, in a in a black right. with a black background. The, my mother bought this for my father back in the '60s, and so I've been uh-huh. wearing it for uh, as long as I can remember now twenty twenty five years now, and so. Um, and and so I wear this thing all the time, and every now and then someone will come up to me, and it just happened recently uh, in this little town, and they'll say this little secret Cody sounding thing um, um, because uh-huh. they think they think it's a Masonic ring, and they think I know some sort of like of the lingo, <laughs> and so and, it's, yeah. and, and the first few times it happened, I was I was living in New York at the time, I was literally I had no idea what was going on, and then after a while I started realizing that they would then look down at my <laughs> ring and realize that, oh, I'm talking to the wrong person. Um, and so I looked That's into awesome. it. And so, yeah, that that Masonic connection is I've kind of felt personally <laughs> a little bit myself awesome. as sort of like an outsider from the conspiracy who was mistaken for an insider. Well, even – that that's awesome. Well, like even in uh, even when I wasn't actively studying the stuff that would pop up because, you know, and we'll talk about this, but these are, you know, not fringe by any means. They influence like day to day life yeah. and, you know, the course of, you know, our country and other countries and that kind of thing. Uh, but, you know, I was as a kid, I was really interested in the Civil War and, um, you know, I watched the movie Gettysburg over and over and over again. Yeah. And uh there were a lot of, you know, there, there were lots of Freemason lodges in the United States at that time, as there are still, and that became a sort of, um, uh, I don't know where, I'm trying to find an academic word to describe this thing, so I'll just coin, I'll just coin one because that's what we can do. This kind of meta structure, even above the Union and the Confederacy, yeah, yeah, where wounded, yeah, w- guys who are wounded in battle, if they're Masons, they can give some sort of sign. And anybody who recognizes that will come to their aid, regardless of what side they're on. Yes. Um, which is interesting. And um, well, the, the kind of, and again, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but that's the kind of thing that the kind of uh, assistance to a brother that used to be performed by religion, yeah. which I think is a really interesting aspect of this whole whole topic yeah um and actually i've taught the uh, if you don't know if you there's a movie version of it um it's called from hell it was a graphic novel written by yeah. um alan moore and uh, right. uh I, I taught that last time i actually taught a class on conspiracy theories uh in literature awesome. basically <laughs> um and uh and, and yeah it was a lot of fun and we we read that graphic novel which yeah um is built on now the, the movie is much different the movie treats the uh, it's a Jack the Ripper story, and the movie treats right. the, it as a mystery. Like who is Jack the Ripper? In the graphic novel, we know right from the beginning. We actually watch the conspiracy conspiracy be assembled, and so there is no mystery mm-hmm. as to what's going on. And there's this one amazing scene where Jack the Ripper is. Uh, um, and this is built on. I mean, there's a whole lot of conspiracy theories around Jack the Ripper, um, his identity, right. um, and so this is built on one of those theories. And so Alan Moore sort of takes one of them to be true and, and creates a story um, surrounding yeah. that. It's a terrific, terrific novel. Um, but uh, he actually takes his 
a little henchman around the city of London and gives him a tour of all these Masonic uh, symbols that have this ancient meaning that um, the world needs this uh, structure imposed upon it symbolically. Uh, mm. and, and so it's a really fascinating uh, narrative. That chapter where he walks around London and shows him various obelisks and churches that were built by Masons and encoded with certain um, meaning and symbols. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating little section, but it gets at what you're saying about the, the Masonic uh, fear uh, <laughs> that, that uh, right. has like instigated so many conspiracy, conspiracy theories. I mentioned Richard Hofstadter uh, in the opening right. and uh, in his, uh, that it's kind of a landmark essay, and I'll I'll send a link to it. It's still on Harper's uh, uh, website, and it's free to read. Uh, I'll put a link on the Facebook page if you want to read it. It's it's not a long read, and it's a really interesting, um, almost taxonomy of uh, of conspiracy theories in American history. Um, and and he mentions Masonic panics as as one of them, and um, mm-hmm. and for good reason, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Th- so yeah, to me, you've hit on a lot of the big ones, and I similar to you. Uh, Looking back, a lot of it comes from my upbringing. In our correspondence in planning for this episode, you mentioned Chick Tracks. Um, yes, I was about to bring that up. <laughs> I accidentally, accidentally skipped over Jack Chick in my little bandwidth yeah. notes here. Those little comics are so interesting. Um, and I actually saw one recently. They're still being published, apparently. Uh, I saw one oh, in, yeah. the, in the local Dunkin' Donuts here, and uh, and I, I picked it up and kept it. And, uh, yeah, it, it's. Uh, <laughs> I remember my aunt had tons of those things and would go over to their house and I just sit there and read these things in kind of wide-eyed wonder. Uh, <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and these are all sort of, I mean, many, I, I remember one in particular, there was like a Pope and like a demon <laughs> and somebody else standing over like the newer national version of the Bible. <laughs> Saying that this is, oh. <laughs> we're going to deceive the nations with this with this book, uh, and, and it's sort of uh, one of those King James only kind of arguments that it's yeah. making, and it constructs this. Yeah, scene. you can't. <laughs> well, if if you want really lurid, like crazy illustrations, definitely visit chick dot com because I think all of them are on there to just peruse. Yeah, um, yeah, and and I want to I want to walk back something I said a little bit earlier. Um, I do want, I do want to give credit where credit's due because my I mentioned my upbringing, uh, our particular church, my family, the people that we knew never never thank God kind of went down the KJV only rabbit hole. Oh yeah yeah. Um, because because we did we had associated churches that did and there's like not really any coming back from that, <laughs> uh, especially if you're in the Ch- the uh, Jack Chick country. Yeah. Um, to me that was kind of a uh, you know in the sliding scale of kind of fringe evangelical craziness we were somewhere in the middle and you know there were those like nut bars with the chick tracks out somewhere far beyond us um yeah i remember as a kid i think we took like a high school trip to a bowling alley and i went to the restroom and there was a a track in there i was like oh well that's nice and then i look at it and of all the tracks that people can leave in a public area it was a track about from jack chick about I, it might even have been the one that you were mentioning about <laughs> how the King James Bible is the only Bible yeah. you should read. Yeah. And I was in high school and had no foreign language training or literary critical, critical training or anything. And I was like, this is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Like obviously fallacious. <laughs> yeah. We, you know, I have to say when we first moved to Georgia, um, I don't know how much of my biography the listener knows. I, for three years, taught at a small um, evangelical college in Georgia. And just this year, I've moved back up north where I'm from originally. Um, And uh, we first moved to Georgia, like maybe one of the first 
days we were down there, I saw a bumper sticker on a car that said, if it ain't King James, it ain't Bible. <laughs> so, well, they, uh, uh, my, uh, my brother, we, we went to like a small private high school, like Christian high school run by another church. And, uh, that was a little bit, I don't think they were straight up KJV only, but they, uh, they leaned in that direction and they invited college reps from places. Um, and I remember my brother telling me as he was a senior in high school, uh, he's seven years younger than I am, um, that they had had a rep from some very kind of small, you know, I, I don't want to be too pejorative here, <laughs> a very, very small Bible college. Yeah. And, uh, that, that was known to be like really hard on, you know, the, the KJV only thing. And one of the students and the, in the Q and a time asked about that. And the guy, the representative of an institution of higher learning said that they were KJV only because that was the Bible Jesus used. <laughs> well, like, <laughs> that is like, amazing. <laughs> I, I know. I know. I was you like, can't you make can't, up. You know. You can't you, make. That's exact. Yeah. Well. Yeah. And, so. and, what, and ironically, and I think this will probably come up. And I think that uh, Hofstadter. I just recently just kind of perused it briefly in uh, prepping for this episode. But I think he mentioned something like this: is that the conspiracist often, um, um like emulates the methods of his supposed enemy. And and to right. me, it's very interesting because these uh, King James only folks are su- purporting some sort of demonic conspiracy um, with these other right. translations of the Bible. And yet the King James Bible itself can be thought of as a conspiracy <laughs> from the King, right? From yeah. King James is right, to yeah. sort of uh, to make him look good. And so you can't, I'm not well, saying, yeah, I, I mean, why I actually like reading the King James just for the poetry of it. This is not, I'm not yeah, against yeah. the King James version of the Bible, but, uh, oh, but yeah, yeah, I think if there's any case to be made for a conspiracy, it's the by that by that version of the Bible itself. And so, um, yeah, yeah, and and, and, you, and you can really get out and uh, oh sorry <laughs> no no well yeah and, and you can yeah we'll go out on a lot of limbs I think today this yeah. is uh, the nature of the beast that we're dealing with here yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you had mentioned before just uh, before we kind of get into these other things I, I want to take our time through this because this is this is a fun thing for me and I'd like to sort of enjoy it so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to rush through this but uh, uh, the uh, uh, the church background and so I went to all those rock and roll seminars, like when I was a kid as well. And so I remember one in particular, and these things, most of them were hilarious because they were introducing us to music that we would have never discovered had not been for them. Right. I I would have these death metal bands. (laughs) Like I never would have come across this on my own. Um, and, uh, and frankly to this day, I mean, they made a better, I mean, they made a better case for listening to the band poison than poison ever made for themselves. (laughs) Right. And so, um, uh, so, but I, uh, one in particular, I just stuck with me forever. And we went to this, it was this little country church, of course, and it's always nighttime in my memory. I don't know when it actually was, but, um, but the, uh, well, the better to see that bonfire. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, um, did you, there was a Babylon B article about like some yes. demonic <laughs> figure arising from the flames of burning oh, CDs in a church camp. Yeah. Babylon B is actually really good. Uh, if you guys haven't, yeah, been, that, uh, that reading is that. the best. <laughs> that is the best non onion onion wannabe I've ever seen. It is, and and they For are stuff like that, like heartless. I mean, they are like cruel, and they like cast that satiric eye at Christian culture in, in a beautiful way. It, it's been great oh, so yeah. far, um, but. Uh, 
this one guy in particular was talking about the Eagles album Hotel California and, uh, yes. um, and the LP of those and if you're a younger listener you may not know what an LP is but uh, they're, they're hipster things now you know what an LP is the, the, the vinyl um, uh, you would fold out and there was this giant picture like in some kind of swanky Californian looking weird place and um, the Eagles are there with this giant group of like serious looking people and um uh, and I hate the Eagles. This is not me defending the Eagles, by the way. If, if you don't know that about me now, you should. I really detest the Eagles. Um, so you, so you and the dude are on the same. Page. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I, I'll take CCR over the, over the Eagles for sure. Um, Amen to that. <laughs> but the uh, uh, inside, and so he zooms us in to this figure in a balcony. Um, and you see this like little stuff hanging over the balcony, and he zooms in, zooms in, zooms in, and you see this by now distorted, weird, bizarre looking person standing in the top of the balcony. And this man has the gall to tell us that this is a picture of Satan who is uh, looking over the proceedings here. <laughs> and you know how terrifying See, that is I, <laughs> for a young boy to think oh, he just yeah. saw a picture of the devil. You know what I mean? I've never recovered well, from this. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm amazed to say this, but I actually heard a more reasonable version. Okay, we watched we watched a series of videos that did the same thing, zooming in on that album cover, and of course going word by word through the lyrics. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, But the on the the video we watched by a guy, and I'm going to go ahead and just name drop him here, I guess, since we named Jack Chick. Uh, I think his name was David Benoit. Oh, nice. And the only reason I remember that is because all of my friends were obsessed with wrestling, Ah. Um, and there was a wrestler at that time named Chris Benoit, and so they were cracking (laughs) wrestling jokes the whole time um anyway he, he points out this figure and he says that it's actually anton levey the founder of the church of satan ah um and i never th- i never thought that would sound reasonable but your story actually turns it up to 11 <laughs> yeah so they all did and yeah and so yeah that that's i i so i've had that kind of conspiratorial background which and i've made the claim uh i don't know if this is why but i've been forever drawn to like horror and, and things like that. I, I find it. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if this is, you know, a backfiring mechanism <laughs> from, from my youth, <laughs> uh, youth group days. But, um, but anyway, so I, on my own, I've kind of loved watching like paranormal documentaries and stuff. And I particularly, I think I mentioned in the David Barton episode, ancient aliens. Um, I watched yeah. a lot of that this week. Now that graduation is over just because I, <laughs> I find it to be hilarious. And, and the conspiratorial mindset is just blown to these extreme positions in this. Every little yeah. piece of whatever they can call evidence, let's say is uh, just extrapolated out to this natural conclusion. The same conclusion is that, there is no sort of metaphysical world. Um, it's all just uh, technology-driven ancient aliens who have, you know, done everything that we've attributed yeah. to religion or art or anything else. Um, and some right. of these things just go like over the top, hilariously. Um, in terms of uh, like, there's one about Bigfoot being sort of an alien being <laughs> who's sent to like watch over us. And, and, and oh, so, he's, yeah. well, he's a Wookiee, right? Oh, he, maybe he's a Wookiee. Yeah, that makes some sense. Actually, it's Chewbacca. I never thought about that. Um, <laughs> But uh, so anyway, I'm surprised they haven't come up with the George Lucas episode saying he was actually inspired by ancient aliens who wanted to get their story out there. Or something. Um, I'm sure that's coming up next season. But uh, yeah, so I, I, uh, I'm, I, I have no doubt that there are Star Wars conspiracy theories out there. Oh, I'm sure there are. Yeah. Uh, but so I, I'm like drawn to these things out of an intellectual sort of curiosity. Um, and, and JFK was another yeah. big one for me, too. I remember when I grew up. 
you know, in the eighties, this was sort of still like, a. I don't know. It was a hot topic. You had the JFK movie was about to come right. out. It came out in the early nineties. I think if I remember right. Um, and so, but yeah. yeah, there was the JFK conspiracy industry. I mean, that, there's a whole industry about the, that, that assassination it derives from the fact that there are unanswered questions. Right. Uh, and, and I think right. that when there are unanswered questions, we like to fill those gaps with something. Right. And, and so I think that this is one reason I'm just kind of fascinated with, conspiracy theories not that i really believe in many of them um although um you know some of them are interesting uh and at least you know the ones that are really good do leave you wondering right uh and so but um and one other thing uh before we kind of move on to the less you know personal aspects of this is when we lived in georgia i actually live very near like 20 minutes away from the georgia guidestones which is a uh yes. kind of a stonehenge <laughs> looking place um and I actually watched right. a show on called america unearthed which was a terrible show it's on history channel oh my gosh that, that, would, that even for those things that thing is bad um yeah, but I watched it about that last night, and we lived like twenty minutes away. I, I was there several times, and, and if, for those of you who don't know, there's a, a, a it's kind of a Stonehenge looking thing that was built in the early '80s um, by some person who wanted to remain anonymous, and it's got all the it's got ten commandments basically for. Um, how to maintain the world. And the first one is maintain the human population under 500 million people, which of course we have 7 billion. So that's problematic for most people. Um, and, and so <laughs> people see this as some sort of new or new world order, um, prepping for doomsday that they're planning probably with chemtrails or and whatnot, but, um, and, yeah. and the Eagles certainly. Um, but, uh, and so, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I went there several times and, and just, I'm fascinated by it and there's some astronomical alignments built into it and it's got those commandments written yeah. in several languages. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I kind of lived near kind of a site of these things too, that kind of stoked this interest in me. So, um, um, so, but let's kind of step back and take a bit of a longer view, though. You're a historian by trade, uh, so I think you can give us some really helpful background that'll help frame this discussion of more modern conspiratorial thinking. What comes to mind for you? Yeah, I was kind of thinking about this, and um, we tend to, you know, as we were talking about UFOs and the New World Order and chemtrails and things like that, uh, we tend to think of conspiracy theories in very technocratic terms um you know there are powerful individuals with this kind of arcane not not easy to understand like technologies at their disposal and they're doing this that or the other um we'll talk about a taxonomy here in a minute uh of kind of different kinds of conspiracies uh but the conspiracist impulse is by no means new that's the this technological stuff is just the latest iteration of it and um toward the end we'll talk about sort of historically contingent sort of cultural factors that kind of influence what people worry about and and why uh but i was kind of racking my brains um there are a couple of kind of obvious candidates for early conspiracy theories the salem witch trials um Mm. and of course that has a lot of characteristics of a moral panic as well um uh the puritans um had a disposition um for a variety of reasons to kind of see threats everywhere um partly because of the kind of environment they came out of in england but also because they did see themselves as fulfilling a divine 
you know, their errand in the wilderness, right? right. Uh, there were going to be a city on the hill, and of course, the Satan was going to try to bring that down. Um, that could be through witches, right? Or um, even through the machinations of the savage peoples living around them. So, yeah, uh, and, and we very just, often not to interrupt you, but that that oh, yeah. that really does kind of set the rhetorical stage for what we were just talking about with the eagles, right? I mean, th- that's the same kind right. of. I mean, it's the same argument, really, just in a different time. Instead of witches, it's it's Don Henley, right? Which you know is fair. Yeah, exactly. Um, go ahead. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah. So so they're surrounded by these you know savage, uh, very often unbelieving peoples, and so we we tend to kind of focus on you know stealing land as one of the factors involved in in what the Puritans in particular did to Native Americans, but there are just as much. Um, obviously, religious impulses, but also religious impulses pulling in the other direction. To right through missionaries who kind of want to ameliorate the conditions of the Indians. Well, well not to get sidetracked, uh, but above and all of that too is again this kind of pervasive fear or paranoia of what these kind of dark and mysterious and difficult to understand peoples surrounding them in a faraway place are capable of. Um, so that's a really good candidate, especially in American history. Yeah, uh, I've got a book sitting with me right here that I was using to kind of refresh myself on uh, called The United States of Paranoia by a guy named Jesse Walker. And um, he actually kind of pushes back against Richard Hofstadter a little bit and says, uh, rather than the paranoid style being a factor in American politics, he says the paranoid style is American politics. Mm. Uh, he says you can't really separate it at all from even major political movements in American history, you know, from uh not you not just the founding of Jamestown, but especially the Puritans, Massachusetts. Uh, but to take it even further back, not to dig too much, you know, you could go back all the way to um, <laughs> the Templars, right? Yeah, sure, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of crazy stuff about the Templars out there nowadays, from you know Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code and National Treasure. Um, I always shudder to cover the Templars when I teach Western Civ because I know. I'm going to see somebody out in the audience kind of, you know, their antenna are going to go up. Um, <laughs> Umberto Echo in the novel from Coast Pendulum uh, has a great line in there about how it's like, you know, somebody's finally lost it when they bring up the Templars. <laughs> um, I can't remember his exact wording, but it's pretty hilarious. Uh, <laughs> I say know, the same thing the, when I hear the, the term mainstream France. media. When I hear this term mainstream yes. media, that that's sort of my my antenna. That okay, I see where yeah. you're going. Yeah, <laughs> I saw all sorts of stuff about the mainstream media just this morning on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the you know the King of France actually kind of put forward more or less a conspiracy theory about the Templars right. to kind of bring them down. You know, they were unjustly accused of worshiping Satan and doing all sorts of weird rituals like kissing cats anuses and things like that um accused of sodomy i'm not even making that up Um, accused of sodomy and various other kinds of things and there we see you know one of these kind of classic enemies uh in a conspiracy you know they are international organization Mm -hmm. with a significant amount of um not necessarily influence, but certainly prestige because of their role in protecting pilgrims and ensuring not just the safe travel of pilgrims, but the uh, transfer of their cash right through what is rudimentary banking. The world banking and system. This, this is a uh, yeah. You know, this is <laughs> this is where you get into a lot of anti-Semitism yeah. as well. It's something I want to talk about. Yes. But, but, yeah. Yeah. yeah we'll ahead. have a lot of yeah. We'll have a lot to say about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but to take it even further back, and this is as far back as I will go. Although I'm sure we could find earlier examples. Um, 
Nero. Um, if you read Tacitus's annals, um, the historian Tacitus, who was no friend of Nero, um, brings up the very famous uh, Roman fire, yeah. right? The fire that kind of consumed something like um, I can't remember the exact figure, something like seventy, like a projected seventy percent of the city. Um, it came in waves over the course of over a week. Uh, broke out in one part of the city and kind of consumed it. And when they thought they had it under control, it broke out in another place. Um, you can you can actually look this up and read it online in the you know um, public domain translations of Tacitus. But it's it's fascinating because it's got all the hallmarks of a modern conspiracy theory, just in topics that are you know things Romans would have worried about. Right. Uh, so this fire consumes the city, which is not unusual in and of itself. Uh, it's just particularly notorious because of how ferocious it burns, how long it burns, how much of the city it destroys. And Tacitus says that a lot of people noticed that a lot of the areas consumed, especially in kind of the second wave of the fire, were areas that Nero had already had his sights set on to maybe buy up, tear down, and build a lavish new palace for himself, mm. uh, the Aureodomus, the, right, the Golden House. Um, so that, you know, and we'll have to talk about coincidence too, right? This coincidence that has happened, you know, the fact that this area that he wanted was part of the city that burned down gets tongues wagging. And the rumor mill was a powerful force in Roman culture as it is in our own. Right. Um, the Romans, what Romans would have been fantastic bloggers, but, um, <laughs> seriously, the, the, the rumors that they spread, um, anyway, uh, so Nero becomes the object of this conspiracy. He wasn't even in Rome at the time. Um, he was uh, kind of out of town at Antium, and uh, no matter what he did to sort of like make this go away, you know, kind of uh, in- instituting some kind of like new, cleaner design, you know, kind of regularized streets with a grid pattern, wide open avenues, kind of creating, you know, out of the ashes of this a newer, nicer city, uh, people were still talking about him, right? Right. Uh, it started to look almost as if maybe he was trying to win people back over, kind of cover up what he had done. So ultimately, he concocts a conspiracy theory of his own in order to relieve himself of the blame, and he's looking around for a convenient scapegoat, and he settles on these weirdos called Christians, right? <laughs> um, and Tacitus, it's, it's interesting to note in Tacitus' narrative because he is no friend of the Christians either, and yet he actually winds up noting the sympathy that their persecution aroused. Uh, he said, you know, they're strange. Um, they... Uh, you know, they're, they meet in secret. They have strange rituals. Um, we know from other Roman sources that the Romans kind of misunderstood communion or the Eucharist and talked about them being cannibals. Mm. Um, and anybody, anybody who met in secret in Rome was subject to suspicion. Um, this kind of actually backfired because very often fire brigades were banned in Roman cities because they would have to have meetings and they could possibly be organized in a conspiracy. Yeah. Uh, so Ro- Nero attaches the blame to these people because they're a convenient scapegoat and they're despised anyway. They are a minority. They're in our taxonomy that we'll talk about later, uh, what we could call an enemy within and an enemy below, mm. um, and uses this to kind of focus that rage on the, the burning of the city on these people. Um, truth of the matter is more mundane, right? fires broke out in Rome all the time because they had massive apartment blocks uh, with very poor ventilation and everybody cooked at home using actual fire. Um, Again, it was just unusual in its kind of size and scale. Uh, Not necessarily the work of arson, but once that rumor got going, it had to go somewhere and it wound up coming down on the early population of Christians living in the city. Um, Later traditions suggest that this is when Peter and Paul were executed, although we can't, you know, uh, we don't have any firm evidence for that. Uh, so this is 
you know, conspiracy theories are by no means anything new. And um, you get into some really fun ones when you get back to American history. Uh, one of my own favorites is uh, involving Andrew Jackson, who is a colorful character for all kinds of reasons. Uh, in 1835, he was leaving a meeting, and a man stepped out of the crowd with two pistols, a uh, single shot either flintlock or percussion pistols uh, aimed both of them at Andrew Jackson in succession and both of them misfired. <laughs> um, so Jackson, who of course is a cranky old coot and carried a cane, like all fashionable men did at the time started wailing on him and he was tackled <laughs> by people. There was no secret service at this time. Uh, so um, Jackson, you know, it, it, it's a guy who is a, a out of work house painter um, exposed to lead paint, which may be an explanation for, uh, why this guy, the attempted assassin, <laughs> believed he was Richard III. Oh, okay. And that uh, if he killed the president, it would somehow help him get his throne back. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, again, not making any of this up. Yeah. Uh, shortly after all this comes to light, though, after, you know, after they've arrested this guy, someone comes forward saying, you know, I think I saw that guy meeting with one of Jackson's political opponents, a senator named Poindexter. And uh, so, of course, Jackson starts saying, look, there's a conspiracy to murder me that was just thwarted by, you know, the happenstance failure for the of these pistols to fire. Uh, so Jackson starts putting forward a conspiracy that his opponents like Poindexter, like John C. Calhoun, they are somehow, you know, breathing against him, which is, you know, conspiracy isn't like it has such a wonderfully evocative etymology, right, to breathe together. Sure. Um there's this conspiracy of guys working against Andrew Jackson. Well, Calhoun and various other politicians fire back that maybe Jackson's actually the author of the conspiracy. He orchestrated this, what we now call a false flag, flag attack. Just going to say false flag. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, to build sympathy for his case and make his opponents look bad. And round and round we go. Again, the truth is much more mundane, but the conspiracies that spin off of that are interesting. Yeah. And – um. I've got, I've got a long list of others. I'll just run through a couple of them real quick. Uh, well, hold on. Before you, before you do that, politics. One, one second oh, yeah. before you do that, yeah. um, the idea of the false flag, I think, is, is – uh, we haven't mentioned that term yet. And I guess yeah. to just to sort of um, define it, that is um, – uh, I don't know where I don't actually know what it ref, what event it refers to, um, but what it is that is, is a naval term. Okay, and, and so what it is is yeah. when someone does something as if it's against them in order to give them right. the moral right to act in aggressive ways. And so many people see right. the, the nine 11 truthers, for example, will see yeah. that as a false flag. I mean, this is, I mean, nine 11 is really a, I mean, a, a huge event in many ways, right. but you can't even overstate its significance for conspiracy theorists. Um, this is almost right. year one or, you know, suspect zero for, um, a conspiracy theorist, everything kind of right. culminates in it. And so the, the 9-11 attacks were orchestrated by at least factions within our government uh, in order to give us the moral authority to go and invade the Middle East for things like oil or whatnot. Um, or if, if we're right. ancient alien uh, theorists, <laughs> they think that we wanted to get into Babylon or into Iraq's museums to find some ancient Babylonian artifacts that will open up stargates that we can, you know, use for technology. Um, but, um, <laughs> but uh, the, uh, but yeah, but you can't, I mean, overestimate the significance of that term false flag. People think that Sandy Hook uh, was a false flag. This was yeah. something the government 
faked basically in order to give them the right to take away everyone's guns and whatnot. And and, and so right. that that's a really important um, concept. And it's interesting that you see it very early on, <laughs> yeah. like oh, yeah. as, as an idea, like uh, with Andrew Jackson. And that that's fascinating. Um, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt though. Oh no no no. Well uh, yeah, it's worth parking on for just a second because yeah, like I said, um, a false flag is a naval term, and this is from you know the era of the tall ships, right, where the only way you could identify your opponents is through flags, right? Mm. So very often in order to either elude enemies or to approach enemies unsuspected, ships would carry false colors, right, false flags, and, you know, fly the flag of some other nation in order to either escape, you know, flying the flag of a neutral power, for instance, to escape a blockade, or flying the flag of your opponent to get close enough to attack. Um, that's where that comes from, and it's it's interesting to me that such an old concept has gotten kind of new life through the kind of fever dreams of the truthers yeah um well uh yeah running running through just a few more until we kind of get up to you know what i'll talk about is more a more recognizably modern era uh in the pre-civil war politics you had both sides of the kind of north-south debate um accusing each other of conspiracies as, as very often happens uh in the north um People were worried about what they called at that time the slave power, mm. which was this kind of theoretical group of very, very powerful southern planters, right? The kinds of guys who owned, you know, several hundred slaves or more and thousands of acres of land and actually had the political clout through, you know, the kind of aristocratic um, society that kind of held on in the South in order to kind of bend the country to their will. Right. Yeah. So Northerners kind of fantasized about this kind of small cabal, which is <laughs> cabal being itself kind of an anti-Semitic term. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, this kind of, yeah, this kind of like small group of uh, puppeteers, right. These powerful slave owners who were going through back rooms, backhand dealings, bribery to, force the United States government to do things that would be beneficial to Southerners, right? Mm-hmm. To Southern interests and particularly the interests of slave owning Southerners. And I said they were worried about this in the North. It's worth pointing out that the uh, non-slave owning people in the South, which was the majority of people uh, also worried about it. There was actually a fairly significant un- pro union sentiment in some parts of the South mm-hmm. where um, slave based economy did not predominate like in the Appalachians. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the kind of the impression that the South or the, uh, once the Civil War broke out, the, the impression that this was a rich man's war, right? It's all these Yankee industrialists and these, you know, powerful slave owners from Mississippi who are fighting it out, and us poor hillbillies are kind of caught in the middle. Yeah. Um, so there, that's another little wrinkle of it. Well, in the South, there was fear of kind of abolitionist conspiracy, right? With uh, especially in the wake of things like John Brown's raid, um, John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859. Right. Because he did, in fact, I mean, he formed a conspiracy. You know, conspiracies do happen. That's, yeah. the, that's the thing that muddies the water significantly. <laughs> that, that is um, something he, we need to acknowledge here. I mean, there are conspiracies yeah. in the world, right? Yeah, and, exactly. And so what, I mean, what makes one a theorist and what makes one actually, like, historical fact, that's what's up for interpretation. But go ahead. Exactly. Exactly, right. So, uh, you know, John Brown organized this conspiracy, and, you know, it was kind of a pie-in-the-sky thing where he was going to, you know, steal all these rifles that were in storage at a federal armory, arm all the slaves in the kind of surrounding area, which he kind of picked a bad location because it was in the mountains and there weren't large numbers of slaves available, uh, and then kind of create this sort of snowball effect rolling back slavery through the whole South and killing however many people needed to be killed to get out of the way, right? Um, 
and it became known that he actually had assistance from well-known abolitionists in the north right he was getting funding from people he had you know he had filled people like frederick douglas in on what he planned to do and douglas quietly discouraged people from joining john brown because he recognized it was ridiculous mm-hmm. uh and yet you know, to, if you're in the South at this time, what it looks like is that even the people who don't agree with John Brown are still going to enable him to do this stuff. Um, so you get these two sides of that debate. Later in the 19th century, there's fear of what they call the money power, mm. which has not gone away. Right? right? It's just under the. You know, now we just call them the one percenters. Yeah, or Wall um, Street or something. Or, yeah. Right. Uh, you know, these powerful. You know, the industrialists. It's the railroads. It's you know the guys who make all of our steel. Whatever. Uh, bankers, bankers always come in for suspicion. Um, I don't, I don't understand banking, right? So uh, my <laughs> wife and I are renewing our insurance, and I don't get so. So it's only natural grasp. Yeah. Um, in the in the early twentieth century, especially after World War One, uh, you get this fear of what are called um, who are sort of another another iteration of. Money power. They're you know these. It's the guys who begin ammo, right? Um, the there's even a Three Stooges short that basically this conspiracy, um, essentially as Hitler coming to power on the backs of some industrialists who want someone to start a war so that they can sell explosives or whatever. Yeah. Um, that is a very mainstream theory uh, between the world wars, and it actually seriously delays American entry into World War II for quite a while because, uh, mm. first of all, there's the memories of the horrors of World War I, which can't be understated, and is that's an entirely reasonable thing you to want to avoid, right? Uh, but on top of it, you've also got the impression that not only was the war pointless, not only was it horrifically bloody, it was in effect the result of the string pulling of these powerful rich guys who are just going to get away with it. And you even get a um, Medal of Honor winning Marine General by the name of Smedley Butler, publishing a book, I think in the early 30s, certainly by the early 30s, possibly in the late 20s, uh, with the, the very straightforward title, War is a Racket. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, huh. So this is, this is, you know, this is, again, not fringe by any means. No. Uh, it's affecting public policy. It's affecting diplomacy. Yeah. Well, and um, we have to, the name, the term military-industrial complex I right. mean, I think Eisenhower came up with this. Am I, I mean, yeah. he's the one that popularized that term. And so this right. is not right. a, a fringe person who's yeah. basically no, you, uh, introduced a term that is vital to conspiracy theories, uh, this right. term in, in military-industrial complex. That sounds right. exactly and like was, the racketeering kind of um, – Yeah, and I mean – and and you got to consider the source too. I mean Eisenhower is you know the man who won World War II, at least in the American mind. Sure. You know, former five-star general, the guy who ran the you know – Allied Expeditionary Force. He coordinated D-Day. He was there when the Germans surrendered. He's the president of the United States. He's the former president of Columbia University. He's got enormous weight to whatever he says. And I don't know that he necessarily bought into this kind of conspiracy theory, and lots of people debate what he meant by that term, but what people heard mattered a lot, right? Especially considering who it was coming from. Yeah. Um, From a... This is like the English professor wonk in me here. Um, But so the the pushback that to provide against... I mean, conspiracy theories 
assume some sort of planning and um, centralized thinking, right? Um, that there's a top-down or a bottom-up sort of um, motion to these things. And if you look at in, in like critical theory, people like Antonio Gramsci's uh, who's introduced the term hegemony. Um, you have this, it's just a system yeah. that kind of perpetuates itself and things happen um, based on things that have happened and the ideologies that get passed down to, to later people. So it doesn't have this sort of uh, aimedness that uh, a conspiracy has. And so that, that to me is a, a reasonable way to read the military industrial complex. It isn't necessarily mm-hmm. like a, a, a new world order type of uh, right. top-down conspiracy to take over, like the money system. It is the function of the money system and its interrelations uh, with with military activity, right? And so, um, but that's not yeah. so sexy, is it? <laughs> and so, that's that's and that's something. Oh yeah, well, that's something we'll return to. Is that ultimately, you know, if you have your choice between the mundane reality and something a little bit more exciting people are going to gravitate to what's more exciting yeah um yeah a couple of others that i kind of skipped over there's uh we talked about this with the trumpkins right the know nothing so this kind of anti-immigrant party in the early 1800s yeah um and there was actually an anti-masonic party uh you know all of these having very kind of populist underpinnings um i won't i won't uh, I, I feel like i'm taking too long on this so i'll, I'll just recommend uh go look up the awful conflict uh the I think it's the awful disclosures of Maria Monk. Okay. Awful. Um, it was this, go ahead. I, th- I think it was something like that. It was this book that I believe is still in print. Astonishingly, <laughs> uh, claiming to be the memoirs of a woman kidnapped in Quebec and forced into a Catholic nunnery where she was also forced to, uh, sexually service priests who could access the nunnery through a tunnel connecting them to the nearest cathedral. Mm. And, you know, children born of this union were like strangled and buried in the basement. I heard people refer in all seriousness to this stuff in my lifetime. Um, that is a huge bestseller yeah. in the pre-Civil War South and really stokes kind of the know-nothing movement, the antagonism toward especially Catholic populations moving in from places like Ireland and Southern Germany. Yeah. Um, well, and and the, one last one. Go oh, ahead. Sorry. And in the 20th century – like you know early 20th century immigrants moving in from eastern europe i mean in the area that i happen right. to live in now i mean um again heavily catholic and so what they're here yes. for are industrial jobs and so natives right. see this as a threat and so catholicism becomes right. an easy sort of uh scary um boogeyman but oh yeah but go ahead i'm sorry yeah, yeah and you can oh yeah and you can easily trace all that back to you know martin luther and to you know queen elizabeth and the armada and you know the black legend of spain and stuff like that uh last one i'll mention to uh the illuminati the illuminati was an actual group yeah um established in uh, um the alps uh, i want to say either bavaria or vienna I- i'm i'm blanking on it right now i've always heard of the bavarian uh, illuminati but yeah yeah um, they, uh, anyway, it's just, it just means the illuminated ones, right? It's kind of this, just a small piece of this kind of enlightenment tradition of social clubs, you know, where men can go regardless of class or background to kind of participate in, you know, enlightenment kind of mm. readings and debate and things like that. So for sort of free thinkers, uh, the Illuminati came to prominence following the French revolution in which for some reason, especially in England, the Illuminati were linked to what happened in France, especially following the terror, um, which is one of the earliest kind of explosions of this sort of Illuminati scare. Mm. Um, 
the Illuminati themselves have a very short and unsexy history, but their name gets attached to what happens in France, and thus is a legend born. Yeah, and what a great um, name, by the way. So yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, we well, call it, we uh, use it today. We call it the Twitter Adi yeah. or the the whoever Adi. These uh, that that uh, term. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. Right. Well. Um, uh, yeah. So um, we'll we'll talk to like we'll talk about like more. Or modern theories later, uh, but a few factors that I see kind of uh, lead, leading out of all this background because I, I kind of intentionally pulled up short at like World War II. Um, yeah. I think it's I think it's from that point forward that you start to get what we would recognize as the contemporary conspiracy theory, and I see several factors involved in laying importance, but I, I really don't like monocausal explanations for anything, so I'm just going to kind of drop all of these things, you know, that I kind of see as playing a role. Yeah. Uh, first off, especially following World War II, there are actual conspiracies, right? Yeah. Um, especially with Alfred and uh, Julius, excuse me, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, right? Uh, Al- Alger Hiss, Klaus Fuchs, uh, various other people who are revealed to be genuine Soviet agents, um, right? Which has, you know, been removed beyond a shadow of a doubt since the opening of some of the Soviet archives. Um, that naturally leads into kind of the McCarthyism, which is a kind of hysterical reaction to something that's actually happening. Yes. Um, second, you can't discount the role of things like the atomic bomb. Uh, so you've got uh, these kind of startling new technologies, many of which are very difficult to understand. Like you can't understand how they operate. Right. Uh, um, there's a certain element in there, again, and of course these technologies are developed in secret, Right. Um, the extremely hush-hush conditions under which both the Germans and the Americans and the British work on atomic stuff mm-hmm. prior to its actual, you know, very alarming debut at the end of the war. Um, and in addition, to, in addition to the those things like that, you've also got the Germans working on stuff like ballistic missiles. You've got the Enigma code machine. You know, all these other various kinds of new technologies that are very powerful. Very advanced, you know. We we kind of think of them as quaint now, but they are tip top for their time. Yeah. Um, also, the results of World War II, um, which in the American memory kind of ends with, uh, you know, our, our current memory now of World War II is sort of like the Germans surrender, the Japanese surrender. We come home, we have two point five kids, we get the white picket fence. <laughs> um, that may be true to a greater or lesser extent for Americans, but. Europe is severely goofed up. Um, There's some very good books about that. Um, Bloodlands by Timothy Snyder. Uh, There's a book called Savage Continent uh, that begin with the end of World War II. And in some places, fighting didn't actually cease until the mid-50s because you've got the Soviets who are trying to eliminate their enemies and establish hegemony over Eastern Europe. Uh, So people who start off fighting the Germans go on to fight the Soviets. And, you know, you've got ethnic cleansing. Um, so there's a lot of uh, death and destruction and chaos there. Um, all of this is, you know, fertile soil for um, conspiracy theories, but the stakes have been raised, right? Because we just fought the biggest war in history, and now we have technologies that can destroy entire cities and eventually entire countries at one blow. Um, and I think it's not a coincidence by any means that there's also at this time a flourishing of science fiction. Right. Um, yeah. Which is going to give a distinctive character to the conspiracy theories since then. Right. Yeah. This is the uh, this is the era of Roswell, of uh, you know the supposed whatever happened in the dirt out there. Um. Uh, um. 
Roswell, um, you know, abduction stories start to come in at this time with peaks at various times. Uh, and one last factor that I'll also include as well, and I think this is something you can't discount, the uh, mass media, right? Uh, radio famously, but radio is not visual, and we're starting to drift into a much more visual culture, um, yeah. you know, and to go back to Neil Postman, right? Yeah. Uh, so you've got the flourishing, the rise in rapid expansion of television uh, and movies. And so even people who might not um, – might might not read, you know, weird tales or something else that's already going on. Uh, we'll see science fiction ideas on things like the Twilight Zone sure. or on movies on TV. You know, the day the Earth stood still. Uh, this stuff all starts to take off, and I think that I think it's that out of this kind of weird mix that we start to get the kind of distinctive modern conspiracy cocktail that we've got now. Yeah, yeah. I um, I mean, I would call much of what you just said, and that's a terrific um, um summary of the distinctions of post-World War II and pre-World War II. Um, I would lump all of that in with the rise of what we call postmodernism. Um, I, I think yeah. a lot of what you're talking about um, is made possible and, and comes out of the sort of postmodern world that we live in um, where yeah. – answers are just less easy um to to come by right. and 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 so um because of the explosion of mass media and, and the, everything you just mentioned i won't just reiterate it um i think i would lump all of that into postmodernism which does take these uh taxonomies which we'll get into here in a bit um um and converts them into these very kind of strange things that we now can chuckle at a little bit. <laughs> um, but yeah. they're really no yeah. different than uh, than what we've seen in the past. And um, just for the viewer's sake, I this is going to uh, be a two-part episode. And so we're going to cut this one off uh, right about here. And um, next week when you come back, uh, we'll have the second, up, the second episode up. Um, Jordan and I will keep talking, but uh, for us, it'll be one episode. For you, it'll be two. And uh, we're we're going to talk about the taxonomy of conspiracy theories. We're going to talk about some modern and uh, contemporary ones, um, the ideas of debunking. Um, there's a lot more to say here. And so, but uh, for now, we'll call it a week for you as a listener. And uh, we'll, hear, we'll listen to you, or you'll listen to us again uh, next week. Oh, by the way, I've cracked the code. I figured out the shadow and the Illuminati know that they're finally primed for world domination. And soon you've got black helicopters coming across the border, puppet masters for the new world order. Be aware, there's always someone that's watching you. And still the government won't admit they face a whole moon landing. Thought control race, psychotronic scanning. Don't mind that. Protected cause I made this hat From aluminum foil Where I had this foil lined In case an alien's inclined To probe your butt or read your mind Looks a bit peculiar Seems a little crazy But someday I'll prove There's a big conspiracy Thanks for listening to Sectarian Review. Download us again next month for another hour of criticism, reviews, and opinion. In the meantime, check out our Facebook page, 
and send us an email at sectarianreview at gmail.com. Sectarian Review is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Eternal thanks to Kristen Philippic, intrepid press liaison. Until next time, remember the words of Kafka, don't despair, not even over the fact that you don't despair. Bye.